Milton's Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask the Suicide Squad what they think. Who's Milton? What? I don't remember any Milton. Fuck! He has been with us the whole time! Somebody named Milton has been with us the whole time? Yes! I don't think so. I think I would have noticed if a guy named Milton has been with us. It's not a very common name. I don't think I've ever even met Milton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Dave Chisholm and Rick Quinn. Dave, uh, why don't you introduce yourself for us? Hello, I am Dave Chisholm. Uh, I am a friend of a friend of Milton's. I don't know how do I introduce myself. Uh, I live in Rochester, New York. I'm a comic book creator and a musician, um, and uh, I'm happy to be here, Milton. Thank you, sir. And Rick, um, your microphone is muted, and I don't know if that's my fault or yours. Can you? All right. I think you're there. Can you hear me? Now I can. Uh, yes. My name is Rick Quinn. I'm also a friend of, of Milton's and also uh, involved in uh, comic books um, uh, as far as the writing side of things go. And my favorite Beatle is Paul. And we're going to get to that for sure. We are here today to talk about the new documentary epic, Get Back, uh, put together by Peter Jackson. And we're all big Beatles fans. And you two in particular, music is a fundamental component of uh, your life and your creative output. Um, And maybe later we'll talk about uh, you guys are collaborating on a music-themed project. Uh, Dave's last two comic projects have been music-themed. Um, so you guys have the, um, you guys have the pedigree and the knowledge and I'm just, I'm just a fanboy here. Um, so let's, let's just uh, get right into it. Let's start at a high level with just overall impressions. Uh, uh, Dave, what, what did you think of the whole thing? I, I, uh, I loved it. Uh, it was like, it was like, it was like pretty unique in the pantheon of mu- like music documentary, uh, projects because there was a just obviously it was just matter of fact there were no talking heads uh, you were just in the room with with the group um, I thought it was just I thought it was remarkable at first I was r- worried that that was like a storytelling misstep um, but it didn't take very long for me to be like oh this is gonna be amazing and then uh, yeah and then it was I just I loved it what about you, Rick? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I kind of I I don't know how you all watched it, but I ended up watching it in basically hour long chunks by and large. And uh, after the first hour, uh, when I like pop you know paused it or whatever, I was kind of like had to almost like snap out of it, where I was like, wow, I, I mean, like it was such an immersive experience where you really felt like you were sitting with the Beatles hanging out. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that it was kind of like Dave saying, like is very unique in, in just kind of this type of project in the sense that it's, it's almost nothing but like little moments. There's no really like grand set piece, obviously, except for the very, very end. Um, 
But for the first several hours, it's just kind of like this, like, you know, world of tiny little moments that, you know, depending on your level of beetle obsession, uh, you know, you'll either notice and find interesting or you'll just be like, oh, my God, that was so great. How, you know, John put his arm around Ringo and and as they're walking out of the room and it just like uh, just really gets you. And um, and beyond that. I, you know, kind of just as a, a document of artists in the creative process, it is a, you know, just totally a revelation and it's the Beatles, you know, it, it, it's so amazing that this footage exists and that they, you know, the filmmakers were able to capture this level of intimacy with, you know, the best band ever. And so, yeah, I mean, just totally, you know, riveted. Um, and it just, yeah, it was just really cool to just see them in such a human environment, uh, you know, and, 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 and then on a large, I guess on a larger scale, kind of the rewriting of history in terms of how the perception of this particular period of the Beatles has been viewed for in a certain way for so long. And this completely just obliterates that. Yeah, I I wanted to talk about that. In fact, that was like my third or fourth bullet point I wanted to ask about. But let's let's go ahead and skip there because um, some of the things that were completely revelatory to me may not have been uh, to you guys. But um, like uh, Ricky referenced, like level of Beatles obsession. Um, I had not seen the original cut of this. The the original Let It Be documentary. Had, have either one of you guys seen that version? Uh, I haven't. No, I kept meaning to, and then it was just it wasn't available for a long time. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen the actual, yeah, the original film as it was as it was put out. Mostly because, I mean, honestly, like in all of my Beatles fandom, like this period had never really. Uh, stuck out to me because you know the original let it be album i you know i wasn't a huge fan of kind of the phil specterification of it and Mm -hmm. uh, so it was never it was never like my go-to beatles album or or not even like you know uh you know the next one down even though it has so many great songs it never really particularly stood out to me so uh, other than seeing clips of you know them playing on the rooftop um i never yeah just never sought it out, I guess. So, um, let's go through some of the revelations. I guess the, the obvious low hanging fruit one is just the broader context of the moment where George leaves the band. And there's so, so many beats around that. Um, what did you guys expect there and what was revealing in the documentary? Oh man, like I bet I think my take will probably be a little upsetting, you know. Uh, as but as someone who's played in a lot of bands, like for the first like first episode of the of the show, George was just like he was being that guy in the band who's just like shooting everything down, who like hates everything, who's super duper negative who's like um, interpreting everything his bandmates do in the most negative way. 
you know, I, 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 I was immediately put like on guard by like George's kind of like, um, passive aggressiveness in the first episode. Um, he clearly had some sort of beef with like, with Paul in particular. Um, Mm -hmm. that said, it wasn't explosive at all. It was pretty like implosive. It was just like, well, I'm out of here. See ya. And then he walked away, you know? Um, so yeah. And Rick, what, what, what about you? What did you think? I mean, I, I think to me, one of the, the kind of key things that stands out for me is, is, um, Yoko Ono and her presence as this, you know, person who's just sitting there crocheting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like totally oblivious to what's happening around her. And, and, you know, this is, this, this is the fabled, you know, person that just, you know, broke up the Beatles and, you know, it's couldn't be more obvious that like she had nothing to do with their, um, the tensions that ultimately kind of tore them apart. And, you know, one of my favorite scenes is when, uh, I think her and John originally are, are just in the, uh, recording studio and she's screaming on the floor and, and John's got his guitar up against the you know amplifier and the f- feedback is wailing. And then, you know, McCartney sits down and just starts drumming and just screaming right along. And, you yeah. know, um, yeah, it was just awesome because I, I think again, like the conventional, you know, the, the, the narrative has been like, well, you know, Yoko drove them apart and Paul didn't like Yoko and John was annoyed at Paul and whatever. And, you know, it's just like, clearly they, you know, they, they loved the, you know, they loved each other and they, that, uh, you know, instead of driving them apart, I mean, like, yeah, they clearly were on the same wavelength in terms of like, you know, obviously more John and Yoko's thing, but Paul's like, oh yeah, sure. Like, let's scream. Why not? <laughs> you know, just start, like playing. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, that was a big one for me. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, you know, to Dave's point of like George is being like that guy. I mean, again, I think it's great, though, because it just totally humanizes the Beatles in a way that you would never get. Otherwise, it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. they're they're just another band kind of, you know, it's like they have the same dynamic <laughs> that you'd find in any band. Um, yeah. And speaking of humanizing the Beatles, one of my favorite moments in the, in the entire like eight or nine hours. Um, comes from the aftermath of this moment and they're kind of off in the corner and there are a handful of people associated with the project in a circle. It's the first day that they've scheduled themselves to be back and George is not there. And also John is not there. And so uh, Paul makes the comment and then there were two and the, the, you know, the growing reality of the potential demise of the band really seems to dawn on him. And they, they capture his thoughts on film there. There's a cameraman. He's pretty far away, but he zooms in mm-hmm. and you can kind of see the wheels turning in Paul's mind, perhaps for the first time ever that this could be it. We're done. Yeah. That, that, uh, that moment also has like kind of chilling, uh, ramifications if you look at it from present day as well, you know, uh, it's the, it's the same two who are, who are, who have survived to 2021. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that moment, that moment is, was super harrowing, uh, to see like 
kind of Paul on the brink, you know, but, 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 but again, like, uh, in terms of this, in terms of like documentary, documentary storytelling, it's such a necessary moment because how cathartic does that make the, the whole rest of the show, you know, as stuff kind of comes together. That's just yeah. so great. Yeah. Well, and that, I think that scene, uh, uh, also includes one of my favorite moments is when, uh, they kind of don't have anything to do. So they start messing with the film crew <laughs> yeah. and Ringo, I think is, is, you know, uh, filming for a minute. And then what my favorite part is Paul's at the piano talking to, um, like the boom operator or something. And, he, and he's like explaining how, you know, Oh, the piano, it's all there, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. You know, oh, it's just a few chords and, uh, and you, you just like, you look at that guy sitting there and you just, you know, I'm thinking like, wh- you know, what would that be like? You're sitting there having Paul McCartney explain to you how like music works. <laughs> he's just so cool. And like, um, yeah. And again, like just, I think the, the fact too, that, the you know the peter jackson had such a huge canvas really allowed for kind of including moments like that Mm -hmm. um whereas in any other kind of more conventional documentary those would have been cut because you know they have you know usually at max like two hours yeah and a couple of other revelations that that we can go over i i don't know if you guys would want to offer up uh, some additional ones but um one that was very revelatory to me was just how crucial Billy Preston's contribution to the album and just the overall vibe of the recording ended up being. Now, you guys are much more studious Beatles fans than I, and you may have been more appreciative of that fact. But for folks like me who, you know, just watched Beatles Anthology a number of times, um, in that documentary, they they kind of suggested that he was like only there for one track or something. And so it was cool that he was there. But when you see the full, you know, unedited lingering, you know, versions of these sessions, I mean, this guy's totally a fifth Beatle for this album. Yeah. I mean, he's also, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's also playing like all the, a lot of the organ parts and some of the other keyboard parts on, um, on Abbey Road, uh, and you heard him. See, I didn't out. know that either. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> all those big organ parts on "I Want You," all those organ parts are are him. Those big, huge ass chords at the end of the song and stuff. Um, and obviously, like it was a thrill seeing him work work working out that song with John. You know, like uh, that that exact song. I mean, even though the lyrics were kind of. We're, we're, we're different, you know, it was, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And like, um, I think that, I think that the, it's kind of like Billy Preston is sort of like, if you have a family that like fights a lot, the Beatles are like that family that like, when they're just, when it's just the four of them, they kind of like take on, they kind of become like, became sort of like, they, they pushed each other into the four corners of the room. Um, and then Billy came and they were like, oh, we have to be on our best behavior because we have a guest over. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And it, and it really felt like that uh, in, a, in a way that obviously yielded really, really fantastic results. Um, so. And plus, guys... he's just a, such an amazing musician, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, just God. like, yeah. just like 
one of those people that it just seems like it just like effortlessly flows through him. I mean, never heard it before and just starts immediately playing like the iconic, you know, and then just, you know, every time is just like kind of note perfect and great feel and all that. And um, yeah, and I, they kind of mention it in, I think I think George mentions, oh yeah, I'm going to be producing like his his record because his record on Apple, or I think he has two records um, that they put out on Apple. They're both really good, and um, uh, you know, I, I I don't I don't know if he plays on All Things Must Pass, but I know that um, one of my favorite one of my favorite George Harrison songs, uh, What Is Life, was originally written for Billy Preston for his album. I think I think the story is like. George Harrison wrote it like in the taxi on the way there in like 10 minutes and then basically decided like, maybe I'll keep that one for, for my album. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He's, he's awesome. And yeah, it's just so, so cool to, to kind of get, yeah, because I mean, you, you know, as a Beatles fan reading, he's one of those people that is always kind of name checked as like the fifth Beatle. Um Right. So it was, it was cool again to see that. And and actually, too, it kind of reminds me of another person who I really enjoyed seeing their contribution, particularly in this period, was George Martin. I never really imagined him as somebody who would just be kind of hanging out with them in this kind of latter stage. Um, since Glenn Johns is really the one kind of doing is like engineering and producing, George Martin just seemed like he's kind of like hanging out. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just, I think it's kind of cool because, you know, you see him watching them and you just have to imagine from his point of view, having literal front row seats to watching these kids mm. evolve from, you know, the band they were when they walked in the door at Abbey Road to where they are now and just kind of being, you know, uh, marveled at it, especially when you also consider the time span and like how quick it all happened. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it. Uh, I, I did revisit the album Let It Be after watching it, like I'm sure most people probably did. And it's, it is it is kind of a travesty that Billy Preston isn't, they don't have a fifth box on the front, you know, because his mm-hmm. that record is like, is just enormous. Yeah, uh, one, one thing that really stood out to me and, and quite frankly angered me at the end of the film when when they were filming the rooftop concert it looks like they went through extreme pains to hide him in a corner that was obscured by all of the camera angles that were covering the event. So you could almost barely see him in any of the footage. Yeah. I want, I wonder, I wonder uh, if there was, if, if that was on purpose or you could even see like, like, uh, yeah, I, I, it makes you wonder like why that was the case, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you guys want to offer up any other um, things you would put in under the category of like revelatory as far as like our understanding of this period or the Beatles as a group as a whole? Yeah, I would like to say something. Um, you know, um, <laughs> go to for me, it. The the, the uh, one of the, the 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 I think the most like amazing thing for me. Like, yeah, the moment when Paul sits down with the bass and just starts, like, hitting the bass and then starts singing and you watch the, like, the conception of Get Back, that's that's an amazing moment. But the but to me, the real deal is, like, when you get to the third episode and partway through the second episode 
And you see John and Paul set up in the studio facing each other. And to me, the revelation was realizing that like the whole time, those two guys were just trying to entertain each other. Like, and I'm, and it just yeah. makes me wonder when the two of them would get together to, to write songs, they would just get together and try to like entertain each other. And like, uh, there was something like totally amazing about that. Like that. These are like just two, two kids who were just like really, you know, what, what talented or precocious or skilled or curious slash like playful right so you see this like real-time enactment of like this sort of beginner's mind idea playing out and you know what's funny is when you watch like like George Harrison in interviews about like what broke the Beatles up I think he says some of this in the anthology he just says like John and Paul's egos got too big Mm -hmm. and then when I when I watch this I'm like that's bullshit man because these are two guys who were just looking for the best idea and they're just goofing around playing through stuff over and over and over again, throwing ideas out. And some of them are deliberately bad and playful and goofy, like, and they're just goofing around and it's play, you know, like it's play, like mammals learn by playing stuff, by playing around. We, and like, they're just goofing around and playing through this stuff. It's like, like beginner's mind where, and then, and, and then, and then they get to the point where all of a sudden a good idea comes out. And the great thing about it is that, like, whether they started out with this ability or they learned this ability after working, after years of working with George Martin, that they were, they were great editors, you know? When they, but when the good idea came up, it was like, bang on, that's it. That's the one. That's the idea. Like, um, and, um... There was just something about all of that stuff, like them entertaining each other, like e- even like it's it's hilarious because everyone because people are like, oh, Yoko's just in the room the whole time. And I'm like, dude, John is not even looking at her hardly at all. He's playing to Paul. Mm-hmm. He's like playing. He's facing Paul square on. They're facing each other in the room, just like trying to like make the other guy laugh. It's just awesome. It just blew that blew my that blew me away. Really. Yeah, and to George's comment about the whole ego thing, it, one thing that comes across in the documentary to me is not so much an ego thing as it's like a click within the band and like these two are the brothers and you're just the cousin or half-brother, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. When you really get the sense of like their age difference and like even though it's only two or three years, like, you know, at that time where they met, like that chasm is huge. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when you're... 16 and someone else is 14 that's totally different than when you're you know 35 and you meet somebody who's 33 or 32 like that's that doesn't seem as as much of a gulf as it does when you're younger and so i think they just kind of like carried that on um as they went as they went forward and it's true it's true that like george kind of like cut his teeth learning songwriting by working with the, by working with those guys, you know, and by learning their songs and learning other people's songs and stuff like that. And, and he was a little bit later of a bloomer in terms of his songwriting. And like, frankly, like when he says he has like 10 years worth of songs or however, in that one scene where he's, I forget who he's talking to. He's talking that, to John. 
he's talking to John in that moment. Like, I don't think any of them would would have been been like a pose. Like, I think the writing was on the wall for all of them. I think that everybody knew, like, all of them knew that like they were approaching a breaking point, just in terms of the volume of material that the three of them could churn out. The four of them, when even when you see Ringo sitting down and like write like bringing in, that's another lovely scene where. George is like so excited that Ringo has brought in Octopus's garden. It's like, I love that scene too. Like that scene was just like, yeah, this just like, it was just like, um, it was, it, I mean, just like a really heartwarming kind of scene for me. Well, yeah, all the scenes with, I mean, Ringo. Yeah. I mean, he's, he had a lot of, a lot of those like heartwarming moments. I, um, yeah. And I mean, another thing too, kind of like you're talking about the, kind of the how just like fertile of a creative period this is. I mean, you have them, they're playing, they're writing songs for what will become Let It Be. They're also writing songs for Abbey Road. They're also playing songs that will appear on McCartney's first al- first solo record, John mm-hmm. Lennon's Imagine, uh, All Things Must Pass. And so, they're yeah, I mean, you have them playing you know three or four albums worth of material that they're creating at this current moment not to mention too like another kind of cool thing is that they when they're just messing around and and jamming they also like are playing and and toying with the entire like catalog of rock music as it (laughs) has been known before before and i mean like I, i think right in the first episode they start playing hank williams and i was like Oh, whoa. Like I never would have, I mean, I like Ringo, I know it's like, it has a kind of a country Western background with um, his interest, but I never would have imagined like the Beatles hanging around and like, Hey, let's play a Hank Williams number. Right. Um, just the, the breadth of their, yeah, their musical knowledge, um, you know, I guess isn't surprising, but um, it was really cool to see kind of that kaleidoscopic ability to just like effortlessly go from Hank Williams to Chuck Berry to, you know, what, you know, whatever else. Pl- and then like, oh yeah, I'm writing this new song, Golden Slumbers. You know, <laughs> it's like, man, this is crazy. Um, yeah. And that, yeah. Th- those definitely are other things that really turn the original narrative of this era up on its head because so much of what we've heard until now is that, you know, everybody there was miserable um, and everybody was clearly, you know, um, on their exit paths Mm-hmm. But but they're you know once they get to Apple Studios they're they're cranking just for fun on dozens of these classic songs. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't look to pe- to me like people that were miserable. They 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 were having a blast. Well, and the more that the more that everything starts to click together, too, the more excited they get, and that's why at the culmination at the very end when they get off of the roof. And listen, they immediately go and listen back. And then they're like, let's go record some more. You know, it's a totally different picture than when they started. And they're kind of like, oh, man, another one, you know? Um, (laughs) Yeah. But I do. And one thing I was going to mention earlier, too, is Dave kind of brought up the kind of the playfulness aspect. I think one of the things that this reveals really well is like I've always kind of thought that the, you know, one of the reasons why the Beatles have remained and, and, you know, basically outlasted all of their contemporaries and, and stayed like modern. They don't feel dated. Like a lot of music from that period does is not just that sense of playfulness, playfulness, but also their sense of humor. 
and the fact that they never ever took themselves seriously. Um, they never saw themselves as the greatest or, you know, we're all geniuses. They just, they, they looked at all of their success and, and everything that happened to them with an eye of kind of suspicion. And like, they, you know, kind of knew that it would, wouldn't last. So let's just have fun while we're, while we're doing it. And, you know, the fact that they, you know, they play through all these songs and they're doing like, they're doing them in different voices. They're reading off the newspaper as lyrics. Um, you know, kind of like Dave was saying, just like goofing off. Um, you know, I just can't, you know, there are a lot of other bands that you couldn't imagine them doing that and certainly wouldn't be doing it if cameras were rolling because the whole idea of rock and roll is to, you know, this idea of being cool and, you know, you don't want to look uncool by, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. And that's why people who, who like consider themselves Rolling Stones people are almost like always kind of like a little insufferable. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I know. <laughs> uh, you know I, I, I hesitate to say that because I have a, I do have a friend who's, who's uh, a Stones guy. He's not insufferable, but you know, like uh, it, people who like really love like the mystique of it. And it's like, yo, it, that that's like that side of it is so annoying to me so sorry i guess i'm just a huge nerd but um the mystique side of like rock music is like just makes me yawn so well one thing that uh penetrated any mystique um that we got to see in this documentary is um this revelation about their songwriting technique at least at this period and I wanted to ask you, Dave, as a songwriter, um, the only times I've tried to do any original music stuff, I always had like a separation of concerns. There was the music and then there was the the lyrics and the melody. Um, and the way the Beatles are working here is a much more iterative uh, process. And like John is always uh, advocating, you know, you know, hey, just put out random words you know, uh, Coca-Cola cup, uh, can't peas, you know, whatever, just it's in, into the, you know, the melody that you want. And, um, is that an exception or have, or do you do that way? Your experience with other musicians, uh, how, uh, how unique is that? I think that what I would say to your question is that like, uh, there are many paths, you know, to make something great, whether no matter what you're making, and and the people who you should be really suspicious of are the people who tell you this is the way, this is the path, you know. Um, yeah, it's like it's like we all, all three of us are like comic book makers, and do you start with an, a visual or do you start with the script or some words? Uh, and it's like. Yeah, of course. All who, yeah, who cares? Like, yes, all, of course. Yeah, we start with all of these things, or yeah. none of these things, or whatever. And like for music and lyrics, it's like, um, you know, I'm sure that there are some people who, like, like, like one of my favorite songwriters, Elliot Smith, would like just go down to like um to the bar and just fill up notebooks with like lyrics, and then he would like look for lyrics that matched syllable counts and then put them together so that he could put them into a song. It was like this really clinical starting with the lyrics stuff. 
and starting and then doing the music almost totally separately and then smashing them together based on like numbers. Right. Um, Oh, wow. That's, that's a way, that's one way to do it. And the Beatles like, like singing gibberish until something, until an idea catches hold and catches fire. And then that's one way to do it. And, um, you know, there's, there are a lot of paths to get there. And like, uh, my for for as inter, as like an educator you know like my lesson for students is always like you know like you want to be versed in as many paths as you can but ultimately you want to take the path of least resistance because then you're going to keep going on that path and make some more cool stuff you know um don't like like it's it's i guess it's my job as a, as an educator to be well versed in all of these different like methods and thought and ways to think through a creating a song but like as a student um and as like a creative person your job is just to get through it and get it done and there's no and so in terms of milton like is it what is it normal like i mean for some people yeah it is that is the way it works and for some people it's not and the fun thing is that there's no one way that is like the right way all right so next i'm going to segue us into um some like traditional kinds of categories here. Um, first, let's let's uh, name one or two favorite parts, and then uh, I want you to hand out some awards. Uh, just whatever category you want them to be, you, you're you're in charge of what they are. Um, so I'm going to start first because Dave has already sort of stolen my uh, my favorite part, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to it, um, and I'm, I'm sure that this is. Uh, not unique. This is probably a favorite part of a number of people, but just the fly on the wall moment where in a four minute period, um, we go from a sort of state of non-existence of this thing. And then McCartney has pulled from the universe, the essential bits of get back. And (laughs) he's doing it right in front of, uh, George and Ringo and Ringo looks like a man who has not slept in 72 hours. And he's just kind of like, yeah, Paul's doing his thing. I think this might be cool. So I, I just loved that. I, I loved every bit about that. That was one of those goosebump hair, you know, rising on the back of your neck moments for me. What do you, what about you? Well, guys? And- uh, Rick, Rick, why don't you go next? Uh, what, well, I was just going to are- say, I mean, just to to comment on 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 that scene a little bit, I you know I, your description of Ringo I think is is kind of funny and telling because to us watching it's it's you know this magic moment because we recognize what's happening from his point of view. This is just another Paul song. Yeah, and he really there's nothing about it that would would particularly be of note to him in this moment, and it goes to show you that. I mean, another thing that I was kind of thinking about what Dave was uh, talking about the songwriting process is uh, one thing that I think things like this are really good for is it kind of like that demystification of like, Mm. you know, the, the idea that like these, you know, these geniuses just, you know, create these songs and it's kind of effortless and, um, you know, when the reality is they had to play get back, you know, 200 times to get every little yeah. piece correct. And, 
so it, it, make, it makes it even better. You, you can appreciate it even more when you get to that final concert and they just they play it, you know, perfectly after you've watched hours and hours of them struggling to get a cohesive, you yeah. know, front to back version. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, um, I, I, I like that it kind of has that effect where you're uh getting to see that process and and as the viewer it, it seems you know completely uh unbelievable but to you know to Ringo he's just like okay well like this could be this could be you know the next hit or it could just be another you know whatever and like <laughs> uh I think that's that's fun I mean as far as as far as uh scenes I mean <clears throat> Yeah, I mean to go to go more obvious and something that I that hasn't been mentioned yet is I mean I, I do think the final hour of the movie is just completely electrifying and you know I was on the edge of my seat. I, I couldn't believe how I was just like giggling the entire time, especially you know the fact that they were able to have so many cameras set up from so many different points of view you got the people on the street who didn't know what was happening and then the the camera in the apple offices that captured the (laughs) police officers that show up i mean i was i was just like this is this is too good and the way that they you know kind of cross cut it all together is is really well done and all that and then you know when they finally after after everyone in the offices has you know done their best to play stupid basically oh i don't know oh, i don't know what they're doing up there and um you know uh oh oh yeah i don't know how to get up to the roof um when the the police officers finally do get up there and you get see paul turn and sees immediately what's happening turns back around and yeah. just has this big grin on his face and then they they finish the song and they just immediately go into the next one like uh, you know, in, in defiance of, of uh, the police officers there, it kind of reminded me of, um, uh, the, in the documentary man on wire. Yeah. When, uh, when the police officer shows up on the roof of one of the twin towers and sees the trapeze artist. And it, at least in his case, you know, he, in the interview, he's, he said, yeah, I was up there and I was supposed to get him down, but you know, I kind of realized like, I'm probably seeing something I'll never see, you know, ever again. And, and so I just kind of sat back and watched and it seems like this kind of what the police officers in this case did as well. Although they, you know, kept saying, kept mentioning the 30 complaints that they got, which I thought was funny how he kept bringing that back up. Oh, we've yeah. gotten at least 30 complaints. Um, and, uh, there was an, yeah, it's just that guy in the New York post, like yesterday, <laughs> uh, he was only 19 at the time oh wow uh and he he says that he's he's more of a simon and garfunkel fan than a <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome but and i mean i i think that that scene is a great microcosm too of like you know the beatles kind of representing you know one side of the human experience of like fun and joy and creativity and then, you know, authority coming to ruin the party. And I love that Paul's response is basically like, you know, onto the next song and just totally ignores them. Yeah, totally. So Dave, what about you? Favorite scenes, moments? Uh, I mean, I, I agree with both of your, what you guys selected, but, um, 
I, I my favorite my favorite one of my favorite scenes is when uh they're learning I me mine and uh John and Yoko are waltzing. Mm. Oh the wow. background. Uh also it's a great scene because the the gossip around that song is that like John just like just was so negative about that song and how much he hated it and stuff like that and to see him like just dancing to the song I was like man that's yes and then the other scene that I thought was kind of funny was seeing them work on Maxwell's Silver Hammer because that's another oh, yeah. one that <laughs> kind of this legendary piece that like we all hated that song so much and I'm like bullshit you guys you guys are sitting here playing through the song offering up ideas like what's the problem you know I know that it's like it's probably one of the least, one of the most hated Beatles songs, but I just wonder if how much the hate comes from the fact that like after the fact, Ringo, George and John just like talked shit on that song to no end. Um, and then the other, the other thing that I, uh, Oh, I totally lost my train of thought. Anyway. Yeah. Those are, uh, yeah, those are my, uh, that, that, that I, I thought those scenes were really, really Fun. So um, I want you all to give out some awards here. I'm, I'm going to give out uh, two MVP awards, uh, most valuable player or most valuable performer. Um, and the first one goes to the flower pot. <laughs> the flower pot. The flower pot where they hid the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> and they got this amazing conversation about between Paul and John um, kind of arguing with each other and convincing each other, like who's the leader of the band. And like it, and they both claim that the other person is the leader of the band. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I guess they, they, they sort of come to an agreement that like, okay, well in the beginning it was John and now it's Paul. Um, so whoever had the thought to put the microphone in the flower pot, uh, they get an award for me. Um, uh, any thoughts on that scene? That scene was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was, I, the, the ethics of it were dubious, but I <laughs> was very interested in what was being said. So I was, you know, I, I, I turned, I, I looked the other way. <laughs> <laughs> Well said, well said. And my other MVP award goes um, in the last hour of the film uh, to the random man on the street, the old man in the gray fedora. Um, that you know, they've got the camera, you know, taking comments from just everyday people, and this this older gentleman was just so enthusiastic about what was happening, and he had nothing but kind things to say about the Beatles as people and as performers. And I found that so refreshing because a lot of the edits I've seen of that moment and the Beatles in general have always tried to create this false narrative of a sort of generational clash where it's always like the old folks who are like trying to shut it down and only the kids are hip and get it. Um, and it shows this guy in particular is just effusive with praise. And they even like, they're trying to bait him into saying something 
anything negative. And they were like, like, well, would you let him, one of them marry your daughter? And he was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, these guys are creative guys. They're cool. They make great music. Of course I'd let my daughter marry him. So I love that guy. Um, do you guys want to uh, nominate any awards? Uh, Dave, you got any awards? Uh, yeah, I I, uh, I think the MVP um, of the whole thing was the, um, I think her name was was Debbie? The uh, the receptionist at Apple Studios. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. For so long. Uh, she and she. I hope I'm getting her name right. I tweeted about about her while I was watching it that she was the MVP. So that's that's my uh, one award. Uh, the the uh, I did have one more that's like totally left my brain. Um, shit. Why don't uh why don't you guys uh, filibuster for me for a second and I'll like try to like rack my brain and remember what it was. <laughs> yeah, Rick, I'll do, throw, I'll, throw I'll an award out uh, here if you can. Yeah, so I'll, I, I'll have uh, I have most valuable and also least valuable, you know, because oh, yeah. I'm okay. because oh, I'm I've got one of those and, a, and we, mu- we might have figure. the same one. Maybe we all is, is it director Michael Lindsay Hogg? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Now Milton, now Milton, do you do you know anything about this director? Um, yeah, let's. I, I was going to bring this up later, but I did not know this until about a week before Get Back came out. Um, okay, um, see, I, I thought I had. I thought I was going to shock you. Yeah. So, in the many biographies that I've read about Wells, there have been a number of claims that Orson Wells had some bastard children. And none of them really uh, sort of stayed in my memory. Um, And then right before Get Back came out, one of my friends who's a film critic who is aware of the fact that I'm working on a project about Orson Welles, he's he's like, hey, Milton, uh, did you know this dude, Michael Lindsay Hogg, is um, uh, rumored to be one of uh, Orson Welles' bastard sons? And it just blew my mind. And it was super distracting to me. Um, in the first chapter and in the third chapter, uh, in the first chapter, I just kept looking at him going like, oh, wow, I see the resemblance there. Oh, wait, no, I don't see it there. Oh, wait, I see it there. So I kept playing that game. And then in the third chapter, the dude literally fucking wears his outfit from Citizen Kane with the with the <laughs> waistcoat and the and the collars. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's like he's going there, isn't he? Yeah. No. Yeah. I. I mean. Yeah. He. I think he looks. Yeah. He looks just like him. Um, <laughs> but uh, unlike Orson Welles, uh, pretty annoying. <laughs> and um, by like the twentieth time he was trying to convince the Beatles to go like play in that amphitheater or wherever it was, <laughs> right? I was like, can you take a hint? Um, they. George is definitely not going. <laughs> Yeah, and the rest of them aren't on board either. And like, um, although I did like, I did like when one, in one of the discussions about that when they were like, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll get a boat to take us." George is like, "And who's gonna pay for that?" You know, <laughs> <laughs> I just love you know he's always like very practical about everything, which I thought was funny. But yeah, he would be my my least valuable. Basically, every time he started talking, I just audibly groaned. Um, I I would say uh, most valuable. Um, because we ha- we haven't this hasn't come up yet, but and I'm not sure who is ultimately responsible. But whoever uh, 
had the task of restoring this footage, yeah, sure. um, which I think is funny because they actually reference in the film the fact that, well, this is shot on 16 millimeter and oh, we're not going to be able to blow it up. And Paul's like, oh, no, like you will. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it looks I mean, I think that's part, a huge part of the immersive quality is the just gorgeous quality of the film itself. Yeah. And I mean, I, I um, you talking about the the guy in the street kind of reminded me because I mean, all of those shots of, um, you know, London at that time, it just, it just looks amazing. It looks incredible. And like um, the, just the detail of, of everything that the, you know, specifically film captures. I mean, it, you know, if, if you ever need, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, I, there are, um, there are like records that I'll reference if somebody, you know, somebody's like, Oh, is there really a difference between vinyl and like listening to it online? I'm like, listen to this record on vinyl and like, you will be able to hear the sonic difference. Um, it will be just clear as day to you. Um, and and I think for for film, I usually you know I do have other things I'd reference, but I mean I think this is um, a great example of why film is so much better than than digital because everything that's shot now in fifty years is going to look like absolute garbage um, when you compare it to this this footage, and um, yeah, it just looks amazing. And I, I yeah I, I I have yet to really kind of like read up on that end of the kind of the technical aspect of everything. I I did read up a a little bit about some of the audio like machine learning programs that they developed to, to be able to mix all the sound and everything. But uh, yeah. So whoever the team was that uh, restored the footage, I'd I'd give them an award. You know, what's funny is that uh, I was watching it with um, Elise, my wife and, um, and her parents and we get into the end of it and everyone's kind of like sad, you know, uh, cause like, this is such, such a fun time. And, and I was like, Oh, don't worry. Like it's Peter Jackson and Disney. Like there's going to be a documentary like on Disney plus we'll just look it up. And there wasn't one. And I was like, man, what, it, what D- Peter Jackson? Come on, man. I own all those like 19 DVD Lord of the Rings, the big box sets. Why, why is there no extra stuff? Pete, PJ, Dude. Yeah, they must be waiting or yeah, waiting for a physical release maybe. But yeah, it is kind of surprising. And I, but it's funny that you mentioned that the, you know, when it's over that feeling of, of, you know, kind of being bummed out. I mean, that was the exact reaction I had is that like the next night when I had finished, you know, finished it. I, you know, I was kind of like, oh, I want to hang out with the Beatles still, <laughs> you know, like, um, you, you like miss them. Cause it is like, oh, you're yeah. saying, it's just so much fun to just sit there and watch them, watch them work. And, and, and it definitely gives you like, um, as I was watching it too, I was selfishly, you know, thinking like, Oh God, do they have any footage of the white album? <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> is there, is there footage that we don't know about of, of that period? God, how, I mean, because you think like how amazing would it be to have this level of documentation over some other, you know, some of the other like classics and not maybe not even just the Beatles, but like, you know, any of your favorite albums and like, um, yeah, so it, it can make you a little selfish when you think of just like how, uh, you know, eye opening and, and one of a kind that this, you know, do- the whole documentary project was totally 
Yeah. So, Dave, did you think of any other MVPs, or do you do you want to move on? Well, I I mean, I I agree with you that like Hog was terrible, <laughs> terrible. Uh, you know, I'm sure he was fun to hang out with, and he had big big dreams and big ideas. But man, they were all terrible. Um, everyone. Yeah, yeah, kind of a bummer. Uh, but yeah, you know, um, I mean, I. I think like Rick and I are the only two people who are like Paul McCartney fans. Um, you know, who's who Paul, like Paul's are both of us have like the same favorite Beatle. We both like our huge Paul fans, but you know, my, uh, my wife Elise watched it and she was, wasn't before watching it. Wasn't really a huge Beatles fan. Um, and we, she finished it. She's like, we got home from her parents' place and she immediately put on like Abbey Road, and I was like, "This is this is a good this is a good moment. This is a, this is a great moment." So <laughs> how yeah how how awesome is it that I mean again like what other band from this era are people discovering today? <laughs> you know yeah I mean they you know their ability to to stay relevant is uh, pretty mind blowing I think. So, um, and since you guys are representatives of the, um, uh, Paul, uh, <laughs> camp, uh, in Beatles fandom, um, I guess it's my responsibility is, uh, mostly neutral, but John leaning, uh, representative of the Paul versus John argument, whatever that means. Um, like who is the leader? Who is the best songwriter? Who is your favorite? Whatever. I don't know. I do think that this documentary, um, wherever you put that argument um, after seeing this documentary, you've got to, you've got to move the, the balance sheet, you know, a few notches in Paul's uh, favor, uh, wherever you were scoring it beforehand, you need to recalculate. And um, uh, Dave, well, you, I would... you, you on Twitter, you kind of did a little bit of a victory lap on that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I will say I think in 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 defense of uh, in defense of the John contingent or even the George contingent, I mean I, I think that the period that this is depicting is um, inherently leaning towards Paul because he's the one that is still engaged a hundred percent. He's the one that yeah, still like point. is a is a believer. John is clearly, you know, um, kind of I think a little maybe bored or, uh, you know, just, just kind of having other interests and, and, uh, maybe already kind of thinking of other things he could be doing. And then George is, George is like frustrated, but also, um, you know, just not quite as engaged too. I mean, I think part of like in that scene where Paul and George are arguing, I mean, part of the, the, um, part of what they're arguing about is that Paul has such a clear vision of like how this Mm -hmm. song should go. He can hear it perfectly in his head and, and George is just kind of like not as into it. So he's not really willing to put in that, that extra effort. Um, So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, uh, I I would say in that in defense, it's it's, that Paul is still, you know, he's uh, a believer. Yeah. And in this, in this moment, 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I mean, even in like um, uh, one, of, one of my favorite, well, it's just like music books in general is this book called Here, There and Everywhere. This is written by Jeff Emmerich, who is one of the engineers at Abbey Road. And it's a very good um, kind of inside look at how the Beatles operate and things like that. But I mean, one of the my main takeaways from that book was, you know, when everyone else went home, Paul sat and worked on the baseline over and over and over again and worked on the arrangements over and over and over again. And, you know, there just wasn't that level of, of, uh, effort by the other three. Um, so, so closing out here, I wanted to do a few things. I wanted, I did want to ask some general Beatles questions and Rick, you've already hit one of them for me. Um, do you guys have any other book recommendations for Beatles books? Oh man. Uh, not really. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, I've, I have read a a handful of them, but I, I definitely would, um, I, like I said, that one here, there and everywhere is really good because it, it, from, I mean, beyond what I already said, one of the other main takeaways that you get from it is, um, the fact that, you know, one of the reasons why the Beatles became the Beatles was because they were really kind of like the first band that ever actually got to stop playing, which is actually, I mean, pretty relevant to this movie because the whole thing is about how they haven't played a concert in three years because they can't hear themselves when they get on stage. And, you know, Ringo is watching Paul's foot to to make sure that he knows where, where they're at <laughs> because he can't hear anything over this screaming, screaming fans or whatever. But, um, they were really like the first band that ever got to stop and then like be in a studio for longer than a day, you know, um, as a put, you know, when they started out, it was kind of like George Martin was like, okay, like let's get in and get out. And, you know, you recorded all of your songs in a couple of days and the album came out and then another one six months later. And they were really like the first band that had reached a level of success where they could actually stop and sit in a studio and experiment. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why there's so many examples of like the Beatles being the first at blank because they were sitting around and they were bored and they were um, also just like, as you can see in the movie, like just like endlessly creative and restless. And so it totally makes sense that they would be these pioneers for all these different effects and things. And the book does a really good job of, of kind of, uh, chronicling that. And, uh, yeah, so I, I would, I would highly recommend that one. Um, yeah, they're kind of a, some of the other books I've read, they're, um, you know, they're kind of, uh, you know, uh, I guess the, what's the word I'm trying to look for? They're just kind of like inaccurate, you know, kind of to the whole point of like, you know, there mm-hmm. have been so many inaccuracies of the Beatles history that, you know, the, one of the reasons why all these like myths persist is because of all these books just can't kind of keep regurgitating the same um, story over and over. Although I will say, um, Dave, what's the name of the, um, the Brian Epstein graphic novel is really good. Called the fifth beetle. Yeah. yeah. I was going to really recommend that read. one. Yeah. So um, on the spot, uh, favorite beetle song go. <laughs> i mean how do you pick one song come on yeah it's impossible like i i guess more often than not i i go with eleanor rigby but um 
any day, I, I would give multiple different answers. Yeah, it's tricky, right? Because for me, it's like the it's like the be it's not just like great song, but also great performance, right? So like, I don't think "Oh Darling" is like in terms of like song craft and innovation is much, but that performance just wrecks me. It's like the greatest. It's like such an incredible vocal performance, and like and a great mix, and just it feel it just feels awesome. Um. But in terms of favorite Beatles song, man, I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer that. I can't. It's. What about Rick? Will you jump into the deep, the deep end? I mean, <clears throat> yeah, it's equally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's impossible, and I mean, it could change at any any moment, any day. And I mean, like one of the cool things about yeah being a fan of the Beatles is is that you know as you get older, you, you respond to different things in different ways. And, um, you know, I, as one of my favorites, I guess, like, Hey Jude, um, particularly just because of how it kind of, in my mind, like kind of plays into the, the, the John and Paul narrative of, um, you know, it's kind of like that single Hey Jude and revolution as like double a side single, is kind of to me like the apex of of the Beatles and and kind of their pers- their split personalities and so on the one hand you have you know John with this like epic d- distorted guitar singing about you know Chairman Mao and revolution and all this stuff and then on the flip side you have um, Paul singing you know basically a love song to John's child saying the only movement you need is on your shoulder which I think is like the all time like checkmate lyric, you know, if they were, if, if, you know, while they were trying to crack each other up, they also were very competitive, um, you know, kind of always trying to like one up the next guy. And to me, that's like the, you know, there's nowhere to go from there. Like he, he's, he's defeated John, uh, with love, which I think is great. Um, so, I mean that, you know, that song. And I also like, we didn't really, uh, we didn't really touch on like how we got into the Beatles, but I mean, like my, you know, my introduction to the Beatles was largely through my dad who uh, was a musician and played in bands. And um, one of, I think the band that he was in when he met my mom was called yesterday and today, which was the name of a, like a Beatles EP. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's the one that uh, originally had like the infamous, like butcher cover. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but um, so there, like, the, you know, one of the scenes in the documentary reminded me of of my dad. But, you know, he would like be in the house just always playing the guitar and kind of like you try to talk to him and he's like clearly not really paying attention. And you'd be like, Dad, like, are you listening to me? Oh, what? Like, <laughs> and uh, there was a couple moments with John in the, in the documentary where he was kind of doing that. And um, so but and it's, my dad, I think my dad's. I mean, he'd probably be the same where he wouldn't be able to give a straight answer, but I know that he really loved nowhere man, um, off revolver. And, and that's one, like after watching a documentary, I've been playing on guitar quite a bit and, uh, it's a I lot of fun. Nowhere, man, nowhere man's on uh, rubber soul. Oh, rubber soul. Yeah, you're right. I didn't want you to like, I didn't want anyone to listen and think that you'd. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, you, you know, you're, you're right. But, um, yeah, so that that's another one that, you know, has like kind of personal resonance for me. 
Cool, cool, cool. So uh, we got two more things before we go. First, uh, a segment we shall call Plug Your Crap. Uh, how about you guys plug your crap? Um, uh, Dave, you've got a, uh, above average book. That's, uh, well above average book. That's, uh, in the pipeline about to come out. Why don't you tell us about it? Thanks for saying my book is above average. Milton. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's above <laughs> average. Uh, yeah, my book, uh, enter the blue is a book that's coming out in the first quarter of 2022. It's, uh, a book that was commissioned by Blue Note Records, the record label, and uh, published by Z2 Comics, who's putting out a lot of music-related content uh, lately. And um, it's a fictional work, a bit of like magical realism about um, students and teachers, and um, kind of like centered around uh, jazz music and jazz history and stuff like that. And everyone should buy it. Absolutely, absolutely, it's a fantastic book. I was, I was uh, taking the piss earlier, as our <laughs> friends from the UK would say, it's it's an amazing book. Um, Rick, uh, how about yourself? What do you have upcoming or recently uh, put out in the world? I don't have uh, a whole lot, although I did I I did recently finish the fulfillment of my last Kickstarter project, which was a book called Uncanny Valley which I did with a whole team of collaborators, one of whom was named Milton Lawson, who co-wrote uh, a story entitled Earworm, which includes a Beatles reference. Um, I won't spoil it, but if you go looking for one, uh, it's there, I promise. Um, and I'm trying to think if there are other Beatles references that I'm just forgetting at this point because i tend to reference the beatles a lot um <laughs> well you, you kind of you kind of have something in the works i don't know if you want to talk about it but um if i remember correctly page one panel two uh has um <laughs> page one <laughs> a certain mr yeah, i made it two i made two i made it two panels in yes um yeah uh, dave and i have been working on a project which uh includes a reference on page one i believe it also includes a reference on page, mm, I want to say six or seven, maybe. Um, and yeah, uh, it's very, we're still very early in the works on that, but it is uh, music uh, centered. Um, and yeah. Cool, cool. Well, um, we'll have uh, we'll have a, you guys uh, back on once, once that is ready to go. I, I um, want to say there's also a Houston Astros reference in Uncanny Valley. And I'm pretty sure that that was uh, Rick that made the Houston Astros reference in the script. <laughs> you are uh, correct. You are correct. It he, was. <laughs> he, he went there. That wasn't me. Man, a lot of Houston sports fans in North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was afraid. I was. I was like. I was afraid you were about to reveal that I. That I. You know, revealed how much I had no idea what I was talking about and just put that in there because I knew it would make Milton chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, this has been a fantastic fun time for me. It's been a total treat to, to talk to such knowledgeable Beatles fans. Um, but before we go, um, I'm wondering Dave, if I could uh, put you on the spot and uh, send us out with uh, a little bit of music uh, since you are uh, uh, in addition to being a great commerce creator, a fantastic musician. 
my guitar is out of tune all of a sudden. No. Oh, no. You, you can edit out this part, Milton. Now we're going to keep what? it raw, just just in the spirit of, uh, of Get you Back. Man. Now you're going to have to edit this down from the 15 hours of conversation we had. It's still out of tune, isn't it? There it is. Do you guys want to hear Let It Be or Get Back? <laughs> How about we go uh, Get Back? Yeah, you got to do Get Back. You, unless you have a piano nearby. I mean, I do. Oh, well. <laughs> of course he does. Here we go. Jojo was a man who thought he was in on a body that we couldn't last. Jojo left his home in Tucson, Arizona, and bought some California grass. Get back, get back, get back to where you once belonged. Get back, get back, get back to where you once belong. Get back, Jojo. I don't. I'm not gonna play the guitar solo, but you know. And then it goes, get back, get back, get back to where you once belong. Get back, get back, get back to where you once belong. Get back, Loretta. Okay, that's it. That's it. That's all I got for you guys.